It's Thursday, January 27th, 2022, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and the balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Jonathan Mavroyd, a senior writer at the Hoover Institution, and I'm sitting in the chair of Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, so that, he, so that he can answer questions and provide commentary about California policy and politics in which he is well-versed. Uh, Bill Whalen, in addition to being a Washington Post columnist, writes weekly for Hoover's California On Your Mind web channel and edits and publishes Eureka, a quarterly forum featuring analysis and commentary from Hoover scholars and California's top thinkers. Whalen is joined today by Leo Hanian, the Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and Professor of Economics and Director of the Edinger Family Program in Macroeconomic Research at the University of California, Los Angeles. Wahanian also writes twice per week about the policy environment of the Golden State for California on your mind. A good day, gentlemen. Uh, let's talk about the latest developments in policy and politics in the Golden State. Um, to start off, gentlemen, the Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2010, um, at that time, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tried to skirt debate on the bill saying, quote, we have to pass the bill first before we find out what is in it. Uh, something similar is going on in California. The State Assembly Appropriations Committee just passed AB 1400, a single-payer health care legislation without any debate whatsoever. Uh, the bill will have a likely to have a price tag of $500 billion. Right, roughly half of that can be paid through existing federal, state, and local taxes. Uh, the question is, who will pay the rest of it on an annual basis? And is, is this good politics if you're a California governor or a Democratic state legislature? Why don't we start off with you, Bill? Well, Gavin Newsom finds himself in kind of a bind right now as he goes into an election year and that he supports single-payer care. He gave considerable lip service to it when he ran for his first term in 2018, but he's managed to avoid the topic since his time in office. Uh, his predecessor, Jerry Brown, um, handed this over to him because Jerry Brown would not do single-payer care. Every time legislatures started barking about it, he would just stop the conversation by saying, if you show me how you can pay for it, I'll think about it. And so that would be it. So Newsom's left the door open. Open and now the legislature has indeed come up with the plan. And there are two things about this that I'd like to get least thoughts on. Number one is just the effect this is going to have on California's economy. You mentioned raising taxes, Jonathan. This would slap a 2.3% tax on businesses that gross more than $2 million annually revenues. Uh, it'd slap a one and a quarter percent payroll tax on businesses with more than 50 employees, an additional 1% tax on businesses where employees make more than 49 thousand nine hundred dollars annually and then it gets an individual income tax uh, beginning at 149509 for uh, individuals and so on and so forth so number one uh, just the idea of slapping yet more taxes on Californians uh, Lee wrote a brilliant column on this uh, last week in which he pointed out that if you add up state uh, federal and local taxes a an Angelino is looking at losing two-thirds of their paycheck to taxes in an already expensive state to live in but the second thing, and this ties in what Lee wrote about this week with um, follies in state government, the uh, Appropriations Committee the, uh, of the State Assembly, uh, did they have a prolonged open debate on this? No, they blasted it through without any consideration, just did it on a quick vote. In all, they passed about 100 bills in the course of three hours. No debate. They usually do this at the end of a section, which uh, session with so-called GANDA bills, which stands for gut and amend. It means you just take a bill, slap something in the middle of it and throw it forward. So most, most times lawmakers don't even know what they're voting on. But here you have something that is going to fundamentally transform not just healthcare uh, in California, but also have real long-term effects on the economy. I suspect damaging effects. And the legislature is not giving any serious thought to it. So Lee, you take it from my, there with my, with my rather exasperated rant, if you can't tell from my tone. 
Bill, Bill uh, uh, everyone in California should be really worried about this because this is going to be, if it was ever to pass, and I don't, I don't think it will. One reason being, ironically, it's been so badly put together with really yet without any consideration or thinking about how it would be financed or really how it would ever be implemented that I, I right. don't think it's going to get out the door, but right. crazier things in California have happened. Um, but this, yeah, this is very much going to have an effect on people's decisions, whether to come here or whether to leave. You're, Bill, as you mentioned, you're looking at the most productive individuals living in LA County, which has, I believe, the highest uh, the highest uh, sales tax in in the state mm-hmm. would be losing two thirds of their income, sixty seven percent marginal tax rate. Um, you know, we would have to compare that to maybe just one or two countries in Europe. We often kid about how high taxes are in Europe. This would create among the most highest tax situations in the world. And we know that people now are able to escape this, ironically, because this is going, people have learned that remote work is much more of a possibility. Uh, They can spend part of the year in California, uh, you know, winters or summers deciding, you know, based on where they choose to make their, um, their, their, uh, their major residence. Um, so this is going to have a very bad effect on people leaving. Um, you know, Bill, I, um, I noted that um, I believe every Republican in the state assembly signed a letter requesting that um, the legislative analyst's office prepare a cost impact of the proposal. Now, you know, I'm guessing that you're thinking, well, you know, why should they have to actually ask for the legislators of the analyst's office to assess a bill that might be 400, $500 billion per year right. with the state, with the state budget that is, uh, is about 280 billion if Newsom gets his way. Bill, here are some of the questions that the Republican assembly uh, signatories asked for this legislative analyst's office to consider. Will this plan reimburse healthcare providers and Medicare rates? Um, because Medicare would no longer be an option within California if this were to pass. The people who have put this forward have not thought really at all about how to integrate federal health care programs such as Medicare uh, with this. Um, uh, another question is, will California be forced to delay or ration care to contain the cost of a single-payer system? Mm-hmm. The answer to this question is absolutely, positively, 100% yes. Care will be rationed. That is the main message that comes out of every single-payer health care system. Other questions are, how will Medicare funds taken from seniors be used to provide coverage to those who have never paid into the system? Um, what will the impact be on California's ability to recruit and retrain qualified medical providers, especially given our state has a well-documented shortage of qualified medical providers? These are all first order questions that the people who have advanced this bill have not given have not given what thought to. Um, and what's even more comical is that there will be if this is if this was implemented, there will be a nine person board, <laughs> a right. nine person board who would run this entire enterprise. So nine people running a five, four, $400, $500 billion enterprise. And this is the state that can't do the employment department, unemployment insurance, 
paying out potentially $30 billion in fraudulent claims. This is the state that can have a functional Department of Motor Vehicles. This is the state, this is where you have to wait two or three months to have the Franchise Tax Board respond to your query. Um, this is just a, a disaster waiting to happen. And I and for these reasons, um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed this is not going to get very far. Do you think the uh, Democrats in the state legislature will try to at least water down a bill if they can't, if, if you know, if they can't pass something this big? It's that's really for the sorry, Lee, that's for the governor to decide. Keep in mind, the way Sacramento works is the governor, the governor has uh, two advantages. Number one, the governor can ultimately veto uh, a piece of legislation, send it back saying nice try, but not good enough. Uh, we used to have that with budgets. Um, but the governor can also negotiate in advance. So um, we'll see if uh, Gavin Newsom does that in his state of the state address, if he puts out markers as to what's acceptable and what's not. But um, as Lee suggested, uh, the governor is very fond of, uh, well, he loves to do task forces. And so if you look at this plan, you're going to be creating a task force to run healthcare in California. This is given what they did on the economy, uh, given what he just given their general you know, mess ups with task force and process. There's no reason for confidence there. But um, the other question is going to be if they're going to be satisfied with taking this to the ballot, because the way you would finance is you do the tax, you'd get it through legislature, but it'd be a constitutional amendment. So you would have to go to the voters in 2024. I assume to get it done. So um, it seems to me it's kind of like putting your underpants on over your pants that maybe before you do the plan, you need to get the financing laid down. And that's the question here for the governor. Will he actually be so bold as to say that, you know, you got to prove to me that you have the revenue to do this before we actually march forward? What do you think, Lee? Yeah, Bill, you know, and that might be the out he is looking for yeah. in order not to support this because. When he, when he first ran in 18, he was talking very in very flowery phrases about single payer right. um, and not quite committing to it, but it sure sounded like it. And now he has been uh, you know, uncharacteristic for Gavin. He's been remarkably silent on this particular issue. And Bill, I was going to ask you, is this, is this kind of a positive consequence of Gavin looking to uh, run either for the Senate or um, at some point uh, the White House? Because this idea is not going to play nearly as well in the rest of the country as it will here among, among, uh, among progressives. And Bill, just to second your point about the Appropriations Committee, <clears throat> why do we have an Appropriations Committee if they don't consider the fiscal impact and the fiscal consequences of this types of legislation? And Bill, as you noted, this really is government at its worst, just um, ramrodding through 100 spending bills within three hours based on a roll call, not even a vote. They tried to get through so much, there wasn't even formal votes on it. It was just done on roll call, much less any type of assessment evaluation. I mean, what are, um, what's the purpose of this committee if it's not, if it's not doing its job? I would like to think, Lee, the governor would throw cold water on it, just thinking that this is not practical. And maybe he could think of it in political terms, as you are, uh, that doing this maybe is not a ticket to get, getting 270 electoral votes one day if he wants to go down that road. But two things would concern me, Lee and Jonathan. Number one, uh, before he could ever become a president, he would either either want to be a senator from California or he'd have to win Democratic primaries. Uh, being the guy who signed single-payer care under law would be a very sexy talking point for him in that regard. But secondly, this put this in really, really crass political terms. Were this to move forward, given the time it would take to discuss it, to come up with the money, to implement the whole scheme, for Gavin Newsom, it would cease to be an MP, meaning my problem, and for whoever comes to that job in 2024 because he 
he's term limited, excuse me, in 2027 because he's term limited, it becomes a YP. It's your problem. So if Ohanian succeeded me as governor, he's got to deal with this. And so, you know, there you are. So um, I think if he had the chance, he would probably sign it into law. Also, part, keep in mind, it's a very heady time for Gavin Newsom. He defeated the recall. He is sitting on just an ungodly amount of money right now. Has more cash to spend, as you can see, every day seems to bring a new spending plan, spending plan in California. He believes in the idea of this being a big blue social utopia, if you will. So single pair would be going along with that. But my goodness, Lee, you know, the ramifications, not just economic, but first of all, think if you're going to get in a system where you have, if not rationed health care, compromised health care, what doctors are going to want to work in California? It seems to me like a boom industry for concierge medicine, Lee. But if you're a doctor, you probably don't want to get caught up in this monstrosity. And then second, you mentioned uh, the concept of virtual work. Uh, we keep looking for the straw that breaks the camel back. But maybe, especially for those older Californians who are sitting a lot of money on top of a lot of money in Southern California, here in Northern California, you might decide that, you know what, if my health care goes to crap in this state, I'm going elsewhere. Yeah, Bill, it's really going to be a race to the bottom in terms of physicians. Right now in the UK, um, you know, they have the longest continuously operating single-payer system um, over 50 years now. Right. And they're just having a hell of a time. Um, <clears throat> tier one cancer patients are waiting two months for treatment on average. And these are the folks that, we, that are on the... Uh, are on the priority list. Um, nurses um, are quitting their jobs to go to work in retail because retail pays better and the con and working conditions are much better. Uh, I don't know the last time a UK trained physician joined the National Health Service. Most physicians join the National Health Service are being trained in the Middle East. Um, so, Bill, when you ask about what's going to happen and when the, the, the Republicans on the assembly ask what will happen with health care provision, um, you know, we're just uh, pouring gasoline on, uh, on an out of control fire because this is an incredibly expensive state to live in. And the first thing single payer does is really squeeze providers. Right. So those specialists and subspecialists who are still paying off student loans and paying for private schools and paying big mortgages to live uh, near where the demand for concierge health is in uh, West LA, in San Francisco, uh, in La Jolla, um, they're not gonna stay. They won't be able to afford to stay earning $150,000 a year, whereas they're going to be, you know, they're making now six to $700,000 a year. So yeah. um, this really is uh, pretty much doing everything counter to standard economic principles. Um, and we, we would be trading off incredibly productive people to go live somewhere else. And California will become the home for those who are chronically, terminally, uh, ha sick, have very, very high expensive medical uh, issues, they will come here because there are going to be no co-pays, there'll be no deductibles, and any economist will tell you there will be severe, horrendous rationing, probably worse than the National Health Service, because they've got 70 years of experience. <clears throat> They're still screwing it up, but they've made a lot of mistakes in 70 years. We haven't made any of those mistakes yet, and we will make them, and it'll, it'll cost a lot of people their lives.
right, a final note, then we can move on. Uh, if there's a reason why I sound pessimistic and Lee sounds pessimistic, it's because there's a track record here. Vermont tried this. Bernie Sanders, Vermont tried this. Vermont being just a tiny state compared to California in terms of economic scale and population, they could not make it work. So I'm very leery at the thought of California being able to do something that Vermont could not. Uh, gentlemen, um, uh, last year, um, tech billionaire Tim Draper tried to advance a ballot initiative, um, which would in effect change the state constitution to ban public sector unions. He's in the past blamed public unions for dysfunction uh, and corruption within government and their contribution to higher rates of unemployment and homelessness. This week, this week, he reversed course, uh, telling one reporter that he hopes unions will make strides to, quote, improve educational outcomes and government services. Uh, Bill, did Draper um, just do this about face, resigning himself uh, to the reality that public unions are just the cost of doing business in California? If you can't beat them, join them. I think uh, so. I know Tim Draper a little bit. Uh, a few years ago, I had the chance to interview him at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco because at the time he wanted to break up California into multiple pieces. And this is kind of the Tim Draper MO. He is Don Quixote. He likes to tilt at windmills. Uh, unfortunately, he has a track record of not carrying these things out very well. Uh, his Three Californias initiative failed uh, when he didn't even get to the ballot. He couldn't collect enough signatures. Before that, he tried a, um, a ballot measure that would have introduced school choice to California. It was crushed. I don't think he quite understood the just the, the fierce opposition he would get for that. Now he comes along with an initiative that would have uh, banned public employee unions in California. If this were a Lifetime movie, guys, we'd call it seduced and dumped because we, we were kind of led in the concept that he was going to come in and really change the order of Sacramento. If you remove the cloud of public employees unions, that really shakes up the education conversation. It shakes up the budget conversation. It really goes after the heart of the democratic existence there. Uh, so Draper pulled it back. Now, here's what bothered me. Uh, let me read you this uh, quote that Draper uh, gave to a reporter in email. He said, quote, I am hoping the union leadership makes some strides on their own to improve education outcomes and government services. Well, Tim Draper is a billionaire. He's a very wise investor. Um, I would say he's very naive when it comes to unions and their roles in government. And I say that because here's the blowback he got from uh, one of the from a union boss. Uh, he's who said, "quote Even an out of touch Silicon billionaire like Tim Draper has to realize that attacking the very frontline workers helping get us through the pandemic live was not only a non-starter with voters, but a sure way to drive working people to the polls in November. It's long past time billionaires learning that picking on the people who actually do good in our communities." is a losing strategy. Well, so much for humility. Uh, Lee and Jonathan, this is shaping up as a pretty good year for unions. There is a lot of money to be spent. Uh, Governor Newsom owes them for their support of him in the recall election last year. And now on top of that, uh, the bullet that was aimed at their heart is gone. So, you know, Lee, good to be in the unions. Well, it's good to be in the unions. And the only time California seems to make any progress whatsoever towards fiscal reality is when a budget crunch comes. Right. And they actually have to obey the economic laws of trade-offs and making difficult choices and having to squeeze some budgets and having to be somewhat responsible to their constituents who are noticing that you know the street out in front of their house, the pothole hasn't been fixed for four or five years. Now we're swimming in revenue, um, you know, thanks to that top one-tenth of one percent who continues to make California their main residence and pays, in some cases, over a million dollars in taxes annually. Thanks to those folks, we are swimming in revenue. So, yeah, this is not good news. Um, I was disappointed Traper pulled this because 
we just have uh, not only just the the out of pocket costs um, that we're paying right now, but really the pension promises that we've made that really aren't going to be sustainable, um, and also just the in some cases the very bad performance that we're getting from union uh, union employees. And when Draper submitted this proposal, there is a paragraph within this initiative that talked about, I, I believe he used the adjective horrendous yes. in terms of describing performance of some folks who are covered by unions. And I believe he was, uh, you know, given his interest in education, I believe he was talking about a minority of teachers um, who are simply, you know, mailing it in, who aren't showing up for classes. Um, Bill, as you know, about eight years ago, there was a lawsuit brought by um, teenage kids as a constitutional protective lawsuit. Um, Sophia uh, and Beatrice Vergara um, and some of our Hoover colleagues were pro bono expert witnesses on just how bad many kids, kids from poor families, uh, kids from Hispanic families, kids from black families, just how awful the education they were getting. There were estimates that having one school year with a really poorly performing teacher, you know, saying that bottom 10% of teachers, and we've got, I don't know, 400,000 teachers in this state, so that's 40,000 teachers right there, was equivalent to losing over nine months of education. <laughs> and the school year is nine months long. Uh, so that just goes to show you just how awful we are performing. Draper was right on about this. But Bill, I'd love to get your perspective on this. Remember when <clears throat> Xavier uh, Becerra was being sued what seemed like every other week about the language as attorney general he was crafting regarding initiatives. Well, we have a new attorney general, and this is how she crafted the language for this initiative. And um, and I believe Draper was upset about this, and he wasn't able to move the needle with her. But here is what she wrote. Eliminates collective bargaining for not just public employees, teachers, police officers, yes. nurses, firefighters, and other public employees. So when push comes to shove, you play the teacher and cop and firefighter and nurse card and make sure people understand, oh, my goodness, something bad is going to happen to teachers and police officers and nurses and firefighters. Uh, and there was no discussion whatsoever about what motivated the initiative. I can understand why they wouldn't want to editorialize on that. But uh, the language of you know bringing up our teachers and cops and firefighters and nurses and those you know, God bless them. They're 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 the frontline workers. Bill that goes along with that quote you just mentioned. Um, this was going to end up being, I think, a tough a tough road to hoe in any case. So, Lee, welcome to California Initiative Politics 101. In that, uh, when pushed, when in a quarter, bring out the white hat people, the nurses, the cops, the firefighters, the teachers. It is a familiar uh, ballot tactic here in California. Arnold Schwarzenegger holds a special election in 2005 with various 
reforms on the ballot, including uh, changing teacher tenure uh, laws in California, uh, budget reforms and so forth. And the California Teachers Association uh, puts a mortgage on its building and uh, collects as much money as it can to aggressively kill these measures, including Lee and Jonathan, a lot of ads featuring the aforementioned cops, teachers, firefighters, the people who wear the white hats in our society. Now, I think, and I don't know if I've talked about this on this podcast before, I think the strategy may be starting to wear or run out of gas in this regard. We had a ballot measure in 2020 that should have sailed through because of the Democratic tailwind, Joe Biden at the top of the ballot. Um, this would have changed uh, Proposition 13, the business side of Proposition 13, and the advertising uh, for the initiative could not have been more predictable. It was cops, firefighters, teachers starring an ad saying, do this, do this for schools, do this for you know our fire stations, do this for first responders and so forth. And the initiative bombed. It uh, It failed at the, at the ballot box. Uh, maybe pandemic California, Lee and Jonathan, has changed this argument, especially in terms of showcasing teachers right now in front and center. If you're frustrated with your kid's education, I'm not sure you want to vote based on what a teacher is telling me to do. So that's that's one thought here. Now, the attorney general, that's another issue. Um, this ties into the other issue of Draper, which I'd like to mention. Um, I think the initiatives become more and more important in California as we move forward. Why? There is no, as we've just talked about, there's really no rational debate on measures in um, in, in the legislature. It's not a two-party system anymore. It's just things get rubber stamped and move through. If you're looking for rebuttal, you have to either go to the courts or you're going to have to go to the ballot. And here, uh, something I've been noodling on along some time, I think that a group of billionaires in California, people with deep pockets who care about good government, Lee and Jonathan, I think they should form some version of venture capital, if you will, for initiatives and devote it to good government measures, such as going after public employee unions, such as going after the GANDA process and changing how the legislature does its job. The problem is when Draper dangles out an initiative like this and backs off, it may be suggested He's not all that serious about it and sends a message to other billionaires that maybe we won't do this as well. It's very telling, by the way, that a friend of mine named Austin Butner, he's a former um, uh, head of uh, LAUSD. Um, he's a man of considerable uh, wealth himself. He has a measure on the ballot. It has to do with arts and science funding in California. So he's he's not uh, putting his uh, head and he's not putting his hand in the, in the uh, honeypot like Winnie the Pooh, if you will. So, uh, so there you are. So sad to see Mr. Draper do this. Um, I should have been prepared for him to do this this, but uh, like Charlie Brown kicking the football, <laughs> we'll see what he comes up with next. Lee, uh, in your most recent uh, uh, column for California on your mind, uh, you write about uh, incompetence at the debt limit allocation committee, which squandered roughly $2.7 billion in funds that were to be allocated for housing uh, construction. Uh, we talked earlier on in, in earlier podcasts about uh, EDD's loss of $30 billion uh, last year. Um, is this type of fiscal responsibility a symptom of one party rule in the state? Jonathan, yeah, indirectly very much is because the fundamental challenge in getting government to, to do its job and to do it efficiently, okay, pretty simple concepts <laughs> is what we pay people, you know, dozens of people every day to do for us as consumers. Okay, do your job and do it efficiently at a reasonable cost. Shouldn't be all that difficult, but it's a real challenge in getting governments to do this because they're a single provider, they don't face competition, and um, they're very big and they're very opaque. And um, they, it, the idea of incentives within government to try to nudge people to be efficient, to come up with good ideas, uh, to strike down bad ideas, 
those incentives just aren't there. Um, so what we have is this committee um, that I'd be, you know, frankly, I've never heard of before. I don't know if Bill had heard of it or not. Uh, he knows a lot more about state government than I do, but um, this debt limit allocation committee is responsible for getting out the door billions of dollars for constructing new housing. Now, without getting into the Rube Goldberg box of California affordable housing, the, the, the voters in the state about 10 years ago, you know, on good faith approved funding $3.5 billion worth of bonds, which would have constructed housing for tens of thousands of people. And these funds are used to try to incentivize builders and developers uh, in order to build housing that would be rented out or sold at below market rates. So we come along to this debt limit committee. 3.5 billion goes into that committee. Well, who is that committee? For reasons that just seem bizarre to me, the committee's made up of the governor, who at that time was Jerry Brown, the state controller, uh, and the state treasurer, people who are very, very busy. I don't know why the committee is made up of these, these people. Uh, and there's an executive director, and there's a staff. So not one dime, not one dime of these funds are allocated. Now, as we fast forward into the year about 2012, 2013, the limit on using these funds is rapidly approaching. And the committee comprised of Brown and, and uh, John Chang, who I think that time um, was state treasurer and, um, and the controller now I believe his name was Lockyer. Mm -hmm. uh, what did they do? They decide to punt the football and they give $3.5 billion to a committee that funds green enterprises. Suddenly housing is gone. Now we're going to give it to this pollution control committee that funds things like green energy. Um, why is that? Because by dumping three and a half billion into the pollution control committee, totally different committee, who didn't want that funding, their staff recommended against taking this three and a half billion dollars because they wouldn't know what to do with it. Sure enough, they didn't know what to do with it. There, another three years was allocated for the bond funds to be distributed by virtue of moving this money out of the debt limit committee into the pollution control committee. They managed to spend 800, um, uh, 800 million, leaving 2.7 billion uh, never spent. And I'm trying to get to the bottom of whatever happened to those uh, dollars. Bill, Bill, you might have uh, uh, an idea about that. Um, and this was, uh, this was not explicitly covered up, but it certainly never saw the light of day. And no one knew about this. No one knew that here's California's number one problem, housing, three and a half billion of, three and a half billion of bond funding, and never got spent on housing. No one knew about this until the state auditor was making their usual rounds and decided to do an audit of this committee and found this big whoopsie. And they wrote a scathing report. I think we're going to miss Elaine Howell, who's the former state auditor, who really, uh, you know, you know, who um, who didn't, uh, you know, who, who didn't uh, brook any crap, uh, for, the, for lack of a better word. Uh, she wrote a scathing report about this. And uh, what turned out is the committee had really no accounting principles. Yeah. And they decided to implement 
accounting principles. Hey, well, what 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 a great idea! This is the twenty first. Twenty first century, we're going to put in accounting principles, and um, and the new state treasurer wrote back to Cal. That a lot of this was written by by Cal Matters. They wrote back to Cal Matters and said, you know, we're going to make sure that our books coincide with what we report to the IRS. My goodness, internal consistency and accounting and auditing standards in an agency that's responsible for three and a half billion dollars. I mean, you just couldn't make this up. I suspect. Yep. I suspect a third grade team, uh, a third grade team would have done a better job after maybe running a lemonade stand on this. But this, I mean, this is really just egregious. Right. So Elaine Howe is the, um, it was the auditors you mentioned. Uh, she probably deserves a medal she retires because she's one of the few people in the state capital who really speaks you know, truth. And uh, I mentioned her in uh, my uh, last California in your mind column because I was talking about crime in Los Angeles and just the overall mess in Los Angeles. And I mentioned a couple of crimes that were perpetrated by homeless people. And this gets into the ongoing question of what Los Angeles is doing and failing to do in terms of curbing that problem. And then I went back and found a report that she did last year and just talked about just the mess that is the state's approach to homelessness under Governor Newsom with multiple agencies and just really kind of everyone dancing and nobody leading bed all around. But, you know, so Lee, when you talk about money being allocated in directions not supposed to, uh, this is a very f- familiar complaint. California, for years and years and years, California has a had a very high gasoline tax. And what is the purpose of the gasoline tax? It's supposed to improve our roads. Well, that makes sense. I put gas in my car. I drive my car. I'll pay a tax. And I'll get better better roads to ride on. Well, guess what? Historically. You know, that money gets siphoned away, pun intended, I guess, from the gas tax and goes to things other than roads. So Sacramento is notorious for this. It does speak to two things. Number one, uh, you need a very strong state controller, somebody who is willing probably to have somebody start their car for them and taste their food for them. Because if they do their job right, which is auditing the bejesus out of state government and finding all the problems that Lee is getting into, uh, they'll be the least popular person in Sacramento. And the second, it gets to another issue, and I'll rant on this since I'm technically a fellow journalist. Here at Hoover, it's media coverage of state government. Um, there are websites. Cal Matters is a is probably the star of this that do good jobs examining state government. But given given restrictions on uh, journalism bandwidth in California, and just the fact that if you have the choice between writing about a sensational crime in California versus some money wasted in state government, now really the EDD scandal was an exception. They did get into that because that was people losing uh, unemployment money. But otherwise, a lot of just government malfeasance and ineptitude just goes by the wayside, and people don't understand about it. And so, you know, it's a famous question Bob Dole asked me for president. Where's the outrage? Where is the outrage? And and Bill, um, Bill, you, you know, you know a ton about this, having been in journalism, um, you know, for, for 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 a period of time. And then, I mean, almost every reporter I talked to, L.A. Times, San Francisco Chronicle, um, they are about 22, 23, 24 years old, very little experience. Yeah. And when I ask them, what's the, you know, I often will ask them, you know, what's your background in economics? Um, and they, oftentimes they haven't taken one economics course. Yeah. So they are often writing stories about economic issues or stories that have economic implications with literally no background whatsoever, except perhaps for reading what the party line is um, coming out of Sacramento. And um, and so people are getting a media representation that's really worse than zero. They are getting there's there's so much misinformation, economic misinformation that's being that's being written about in California. Um, it just uh, you know I mean just what little hair I have left I want to I, I want to pull out. It is uh, it is it is really a shame because uh, 
because people just have, you know, they just have no idea how the sausage is being made. They might think they have an idea, but they might, even the most informed, I think, don't know more than 10% of what's going on. And it's not a pretty sight. So Lee, since you're classier than me, I will be tacky and I'll tell our audience, subscribe to California on your mind, where I write about politics and Lee writes about policy to get more of this. So back to you, Jonathan. Follow up to that, you know, is this lack of outrage in part um, because the governor can boast a $45, million, $45 billion surplus and the voters say, you know, who cares? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. It's um, in flush economic times, people tend not to pay attention. You're right. They don't focus until really things miserable. It's also, I think, um, a lot of the California government just doesn't land on your doorstep. And I remember back when I worked for Governor Wilson back in the 1990s, I'd look at the state budget and I'd think, okay, how much of this does really kind of affect me as a middle class Californian? And the answer is, well, since I didn't have kids in public school, take that out. Um, I'm not at any kind of government subsistence. So take out the entitlement program. So pretty much not much really affects me until you get into questions of taxation and public safety. So I think for a lot of Californians, uh, especially it was true back in the 90s when we would have budget shutdowns so and supposedly government things would shut down. Well, we keep the state parks open. So most people just didn't even know that their budget had gone into overtime. So that's part of the trick here, especially if you're going to try to upset the status quo in Sacramento, you're going to have to make the budget more relevant to people's lives. But the things we keep talking about in this podcast, be it now today, healthcare, be it, be it Jesse Bill, to be walk around town safe and now your children's education. I think these are very salient things that hit home with a very broad section of the California electorate. Yeah, I agree. And I certainly hope it, I certainly hope that process um, evolves because there's just, the, the budget continues to grow. Uh, I mean, with leaps and bounds, it grows. And, uh, you know, Bill, I think pleasant weather and for those who are fortunate enough to own a home, uh, if you're under a roof and you've got a mortgage, you, you, you don't pay a lot of attention to this stuff that is so important for the functionality of state government. And Jonathan, you know, when you, when you uh, referred to my column for this week in California on your mind, um, it was really about accountability. Um, just one, if accountability the idea that whatever level of government you're in, you need to do a passable job. Um, and hopefully you come up with some good ideas to do things better. And hopefully you raise questions about practices you see that aren't paying off. The accountability just is simply isn't there. Um, and this is why we continue to get $30 billion uh, burned up for unemployment benefits. And, uh, and, you know, Lord help us, the single payer, is, it, it doesn't go through, but that would be just an, uh, you know, that would, you know, the gang that can't shoot straight is now tasked with trying to thread a needle from 500 yards. No, that's not going to work and it's going to be a disaster. Um, these are things people really need to begin paying attention to. Um, and Bill, you know, fingers crossed, this, uh, this builds up, uh, this builds up momentum because, we're not going to get different voting patterns until people really do understand there is a better way. We don't need to have horrible forest fires every year. We don't have to have potholes in the roads with the gasoline tax being siphoned off. Our schools don't have to be so bad that 15, only 15% 15 of Hispanic kids and 10% of black kids are math proficient. These things are all policy issues. They're very fixable if you elect the right people. 
Yesterday, uh, gentlemen, there was some breaking news. Um, Justice Stephen Breyer, a San Francisco native and Stanford alum, uh, stepped off, announced that he was stepping off uh, the Supreme Court. And my question is, will do you think a Californian will su- will succeed uh, him? You know, there's the name uh, Leandra Kruger, the right. California uh, State Supreme Court justice, has been floated uh, around. Kamala Harris um, has been talked about uh, talked about as well. Um, will um, I guess my question is, um, given um, President Biden's um, promise to nominate a black woman uh, to the court, will he end up selecting a Californian? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we're kind of back in the veep stakes of 2020 now with the uh, judge stakes, I guess, justice stakes, we call them. Um, yeah, I guess I guess she supplanted uh, the uh, breaking news on Nancy Pelosi announcing uh, she's running for yet another term. But uh, all right. So Justice Kruger, she is a member of the California State Supreme Court. She checks three important boxes for uh, Biden. She is uh, black. She is a woman, which is two things he promised uh, when he ran for president, um, just as a presidential pick. And then thirdly, she's young. She was appointed to this uh, to the Supreme Court in California by Jerry Brown back in 2014, I believe. She was 38 years old at the time. So she's only 45 years old. So she could easily sit on that court for 30 years. I think Breyer served 28 years uh, now that he's stepping down. Um, so she would make a lot of sense in that regard. Uh, one thing that did strike me here, this is actually, I'm going to write about this for California in mind for next week. Uh, I was reading a column on her last night where she was described as a moderate uh, in California. Now, I think a California moderate gentleman, that's sort of like living in a family of very obese people and somebody calls you big boned. So (laughs) I think we have to kind of redefine what moderate is by California standards. But uh, what it does lead to, I'd like to get Lee's thoughts on this. Uh, When this news first broke that Breyer was stepping down, uh, the guy really got thrown under the bus, by the way. He had planned on doing this a little later. Somebody probably in the White House leaked this to just change the news cycle in Washington. it's a terrible thing to do to somebody who's a pretty decent uh, guy. Breyer, by the way, having a California connection, he's a Stanford graduate, Stanford class of 59, I believe. But Lee, the immediate speculation went to Kamala Harris that uh, Biden would take his vice president and uh, put her on the court. Uh, now, this is problematic, I think, in a couple of regards, Lee. First of all, uh, Kamala is 58 years old, so maybe she would do the job for 25 years, but I'm not sure. Uh, but secondly, Lee, just the thought of Joe Biden standing in a podium and just saying with straight face that I have tapped one of America's most brilliant legal minds, uh, somebody possessed of a bright judicial temperament who has proven time and again that she is, you know, could have got a actually brilliant insight to the Supreme Court. Uh, I don't think that passes the laugh test, Lee. That, uh, Bill, you're, you're 100% right about that. That doesn't pass a lab test. One can, um, one can listen to any of those folks sitting on SCOTUS, um, be it Kagan or Breyer or Roberts, um, any one of them. And uh, what you hear coming, at, coming from their spoken words is something remarkably different than when you hear Kamala speak. Um, the you know as as a broader issue, um, I'd like to think that most people are now get, just getting so tired of uh, identity politics. You know where, wherever that may be, and whatever the identity politics is, Kamala, I don't believe she even received one percent bill. Did she get one percent in the state primary in her home state? I don't think she even got one percent here. Did she? Well, she had, she had dropped out before the voting began. She uh, stepped down in December. Very wise move, by the way. She's uh, dropped out in December of 2019 before uh, getting embarrassed in Iowa, New Hampshire, and most importantly, South Carolina, which Biden carried thanks to uh, the support of Jim Clyburn, the congressman. 
Clyburn then put him on pressure saying, well, you're going to pick up a black woman on the Supreme Court. And Biden said, yeah. And so that's why he's in the trap right now. But what this presents, Lee, is if uh, Justice Kruger is tapped, then what we're going to have is the national media taking a look at California and California's Supreme Court now. So once again, it's kind of it's going to be a look into California's progressive zeitgeist. And here, look at what the state Supreme Court's been doing all these years. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't think it's going to play well with uh, a large swath of the country. Um, the, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I think about just how much has changed and not only just in this state, you know, but nationally as well, uh, and how much worse off we are for, um, for not simply, um, putting quality, uh, and not to say the judge is not a quality candidate, um, but by simply having our lead off, every lead off batter every inning, um, be identity politics. Um, right. and, and I, I don't think people are going to be all that, all that happy with what they see in California, California, ranging from one and a half million dollars for an 800 square foot teardown in Mountain View to wildfires that, uh, produce enough carbon emissions, uh, that, uh, have essentially more than offset every green, solar investment California has made in the last 20 years. Um, so you know, maybe, maybe there'll be a positive putting California on the spotlight. Um, but Bill, I, I think it just goes to show um, once we go down the road to division, um, nothing good comes from that. Uh, and those who wish to keep that division going are those to benefit from that. Yeah, one final thought on this and we can move on. Um, to the idea of naming Kamala Harris, the first pushback would be, well, she's never served as a judge. How can you do this? Well, there's a California lesson here, guys, and that in 1953, Dwight Eisenhower taps whom for the Supreme Court? Earl Warren, the governor of California. Uh, but buyer beware, Earl Warren, much the frustration of Republicans over the next couple of decades, was not exactly the rock-ribbed Republican uh, they thought he would be. But this shows you how the times have changed in California, whereas you could pick a Republican like Warren, who'd go on the Supreme Court and be uh, surprised when it came to civil rights and other issues, showed very evolved thinking. If you put Kamala Harris on the Supreme Court, uh, she'd be very defiantly part of the six to three division. She'd be one of the three liberal justices. And tell me whenever she would break on a on a, on a court topic. So so there you are. But no, I, I just would put zero stock in the idea of him putting her on the ticket. Because uh, first of all, it's, you know, it's not going to, first of all, why would she take it? She's in a position to become the next Democratic nominee. Um, so why would she want a Supreme Court job? Secondly, from the stories we read about her, the critical stories, she's not very fond of doing homework, especially reading briefings. I think justices have to do a lot of reading, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but then thirdly, and on top of that, um, just good luck, Joe Biden, now picking your successor, because you got to find somebody sufficiently woke for the progressives. Um, you can maybe go with Amy Klobuchar, but I think uh, the progressive caucus would go nuts over that. So he'd just be creating a new headache for himself. <laughs> he'd be creating a new headache for himself. Um, you know, Klobuchar, in, interesting name. I um, I you before before I moved to UCLA uh, about twenty years ago, I taught the University of Minnesota, hmm. and um, and Klobuchar courses from Minnesota. And and uh, some years ago, I did some uh, Senate um, Senate testimony, and Klobuchar was on the committee. Um, and during the break, she came up to me and we chatted for a while, only because I had been teaching at the University of Minnesota. Um, you know, this is uh, this is the kind of person who was middle of the road, sensible, um, smart, intelligent, knew the issues, um, knew some simple economics about trade-offs and being efficient, 
what government has a business doing, what government doesn't have a business doing. Um, and uh, Bill, what really concerns me is taking us off a little off track. We'll maybe come back to this another time in another uh, podcast. But here is a person, um, pretty good politician. We didn't see eye to eye and everything, but um, somebody who just didn't move the needle whatsoever among the Democratic Party. Yeah. Ultimately, I think those will be the downfall of the current incarnation of the Democratic Party. Um, but uh, in my opinion, sad times. Bill, you mentioned yet, uh, that um, Nancy Pelosi also met, announced early this week that she'll run for re-election, uh, bucking the conventional wisdom that she would step aside when as predicted to happen. The GOP takes over the House of Representatives this fall. Um, if the Republicans win back the presidency in 2024, she wouldn't likely return as speaker until the GOP suffers a midterm breakdown. Right. Um, at that time, she'll be 87 years old in 2027. Uh, do you think California will have a stranglehold on national politics, um, at least in the Democratic Party for the for, for the foreseeable uh, future? Right. So, yeah. So Nancy Pelosi, a couple of days ago, announced that she'll run again this fall. Uh, she turned 80. She turns 81 this year. Uh, she's vying for a 19th uh, two year term in Congress. Uh, she'll get it. Her district is about 110 percent Democratic, I think. So this is not uh, not an issue of any kind of competition. And I was being kind of sarcastic, snarky, <clears throat> pointing this out. But there is a track record. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has probably had more comebacks and uh, returns to, and than Frank Sinatra and uh, Barbara Streisand and that she was at once the House Speaker, got booted out uh, when Republicans took over, then came back as Speaker. So you can just kind of map this out. She uh, she loses the Speakership this fall. Republicans come in and let's say Republicans elected president in 2024. He then uh, has a uh, tough beginning. He gets a beat down in his midterm in 2026. And there she is. In 2027, wielding the gavel uh, as speaker for yet another time, a third go round. Um, I sarcastically noted that uh, Pelosi would be 87 at the time. Diane Feinstein, currently age 88, probably thinks this is a great idea. Um, it speaks to the gerontocracy in American politics right now in that our leaders are in their 70s and 80s in Washington. Uh, it's not a very vigorous, imaginative group. And it also kind of speaks to a pet bugaboo of mine. Um, I was never a terrible fan of Barbara Boxer when she was uh, California senator from 1992 to 2016. But in 2016, she did something that I gave her credit for. She, like Nancy Pelosi, is born in 1940. And in, 19, in 2016, at the age of 76, she faced a a fork in the road, either run for another six years or walk away. And she walked away. And when she walked away and she said, I want to spend more time with my family. I want to paint. I want to write books. She writes awful romance books on the side, by the way, buyer beware. Uh, but she walked away from a job she could have held into perpetuity. Um, I just always kind of shake my head in dismay when someone like Pelosi, who is of considerable wealth and is now you know, about to turn 81, or Feinstein, who I mentioned uh, is 88, um, uh, going on 89, why can't they walk away? Why is you know why do you have to hang around for another two years, especially in Pelosi's case, when you're pretty much guaranteed you're going to lose the house, you're going to be in the minority, um, which is a pretty awful existence. So, Lee, I just don't understand why just people have a hard time giving it up. Um, Bill, you know, I, I I often joke that just politics is just simply too good of a job. People, yeah. <laughs> they, I mean, you look at Joe Biden; it's really his only job ever. Nancy Pelosi, um, it's too good of a job. We made it. We made it too much fun, too much power. Um, 
I'd love to see politicians who actually get in and say, I'm going to do some stuff is politically unpopular, but we all know this is the right thing to do. And if they get voted out, hey, they took one for the team and they did some they made some important contributions. And now we have people that want to be there forever, that are afraid to step on toes. Um that are afraid to take on any challenges. I mean, you just look at um, issues about Social Security and Medicare and and independent, uh, yeah, besides partisan issues, right or left, who's standing up and saying, hey, you know what, we got to address Social Security, we got to address Medicare. Nobody is because they know it's not in their political interest. Um, and, you know, Bill, in terms of Pelosi and age, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm well above the median age in the United States now. Uh, and, and I just think about, you know, the kind of energy you need at the age of 87 or 88. Maybe they're taking a couple of shots of Red Bull and vitamin Bs during the day. Um, but when I look at Pelosi uh, and when you mentioned, you know, the older folks leading yeah. political parties, I think about, you know, back in the day, I don't think we would have a Democratic Party that I see is so fractured. I would like right. to think that uh, the speaker... The Speaker of the House would be able to go to people like AOC uh, or Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib, who, whose political views, economic views are very, very different than most everyone in the country, and say, we are going to be reasonably united and we may have respectful differences, but we're not going to have more than one Democratic Party. And on my watch, you're going to have to you're going to have to make some adjustments and you're going to have to uh, give on some of the stuff that you're thinking about, because this is not where this party is. You want to go become yeah. socialist, go become socialist. Um, she can't do that. Maybe one time she could. But she she certainly can't do that now. And I think we're all paying a price for that. Yeah. So I think you know, this reflects one thing. Uh, when in doubt, I always fall back on Seinfeld and Simpsons analogies. And there's a wonderful episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza learns the value of always going out on a high note. And one of Nancy Pelosi's problems right now is she can't walk away from Congress on a high note because Congress can't do anything like build back better or voting rights, as we've seen. So she would leave on a sour note, not a high note. But secondly, maybe what she's thinking is this. And thank you for mentioning AOC, Lee. Um, I'd be very curious to watch Republican advertising this fall and to see who the heavy is in the Republican ads. Remember, remember uh, back in 1980 when uh, Ronald Reagan uh, swept in, Tip O'Neill was a star of, of Republican ads. They ran this very clever ad showing this big car pulled over by the side of the road. It wasn't moving. And the ad was the Democrats have run out of gas. And they had this buffoonish character with big shock of white hair in the front seat. It was Tip O'Neill, pretty obviously, who they're getting at. I'd be very curiously to see who is the heavy in Republican ads, if it is Nancy Pelosi or AOC is the face of what scares you most about democratic politics. It's no longer Hillary Clinton. Ted Kennedy left us a long time ago. It would have been Nancy Pelosi, but maybe AOC and the squad will come forward as what as, as to what Republicans will use as a, as their tactic. So maybe that has Pelosi thinking that, you know, I can just kind of skate by in this election. I won't be blamed for this. It'll be blamed on the Biden White House and the squad and so forth. And so maybe that's part of the rationale here. But, you know, again, I'm just staggered just because, again, the idea of she wants to do more positive things in the House. Well, it ain't happening now. And once she's on the minority side for two to four to however many years she plans to hang around, nothing's going to happen there because being in the minority in the House is the equivalent of being in the minority in the state legislature. You are locked out. Yeah, I, yes, absolutely. 100%. And ironically, for Nancy Pelosi to go out on that George Costanza high note we all aspire to, it would be her becoming a real leader. 
and advancing ideas that are the right ones for the country, economically reasonable, socially reasonable, culturally reasonable, not what's going on in the Democratic Party right now. So, uh, yeah, Bill, I, I, I love the I love the Consanza reference. Um, you know, golden age of TV, I guess, was back in the 50s and 60s, but uh, early 90s, you know, a couple of pretty good shows. Jim, I'd like to uh, close out this podcast by uh, talking about the California Bowl uh, this Sunday uh, between the L.A. Rams and the San Francisco 49ers over at uh, SoFi Stadium, the state-of-the-art SoFi Stadium in Englewood. Um, this is this is for bragging rights in the NFC and for uh, the state of California, the North-South rivalry. Uh, there are several storylines, including the relationships between coaches, you know, Kyle Shanahan and Sean McVay. McVay was once an assistant to Shanahan. And the fact that uh, Los Angeles, once forgotten in the world of the NFL, will be the epicenter of football for the next uh, two weeks because the Super Bowl will also be played um, at SoFi Stadium. Uh, gentlemen, aside from the football storylines, uh, what do you think the most interesting political, economic, and social themes of the next two weeks will be uh, for football in California? Well, um, full disclosure, I'm writing a piece to the Washington Post on how I think Los Angeles is a terrible venue for the Super Bowl, given this regard. Um, it's not just the game, but it's several days of parties walking up to the game. And I think this is going to be, Lee and Jonathan, just one vast exercise in COVID hypocrisy, where city and county officials are just going to look the other day while parties are held where people are not masking and people are not socially distancing and people aren't vaxxed and so forth. But uh, uh, when in doubt, it's always tempting to go into uh, the north-south dynamic that is California. For We mentioned Tim Draper wanting to break up the uh, state into multiple parts. For years, there's always been conversations about there should be two Californians, a northern California, a southern California. They're both large enough to be their own states. Um, we do this. We do see this play out in sports with the Dodgers and the Giants, who have had this genuine rivalry since both teams came to the West Coast back in the late 1950s. People now want to do this with the 49ers and the Rams, saying this is the new North-South rivalry. But there are two problems with this. Number one, uh, when you go to a Dodgers-Giants game, uh, depending on which stadium you're in, it is vastly, rapidly against the visiting team. There's no question which city you're in. When you go to a sporting event in Los Angeles, Lee being close to LA can attest to this, you kind of wonder what city you're in because they're not cheering for the home team. And this will be evidence in Sunday's game where I've seen estimates of up to 60 to 65% of the audience will be people, 49ers fans who bought tickets. Now, this gets into the economy of California, which I want Lee to talk about. First of all, um, Los Angeles uh, got very greedy when it built its new stadium and it asked for these exorbitant uh, seat licenses from people. So what do people do? They look to make money back. And so how they make money back, they resell their tickets. And when a game like this is in demand, they make a healthy amount of money doing this. And this is a lot of people, by the way, who did not grow up in the Los Angeles Rams are not sentimentally attached. So they're more than willing to be mercenary fans, if you will. Uh, but secondly, what it does show is that in California, there are a lot of people who have a lot of money on their hands and are free to sell. Uh, Lee, I went on a website and looked up tickets just to see if I drove south, picked up my buddy Leo Hedian and went to a game. Uh, we could sit in the nosebleeds for about 500 bucks. A good seat, which I would say kind of gets a nice view of the field, is about four grand. Lee, there's an individual who wants to sell you a sweet ticket for $244,000. Now, Lee, you're an economist and I'm not. But if somebody has two a quarter of a million dollars to waste on a football game, that's not even the friggin' Super Bowl. You probably made a pretty good argument for raising taxes on that person. Bill, there's uh, there's no accounting for taste, is there? For people how they uh, how they spell how they spend their money. Um, 
You know, it, it's such an interesting point you bring up. Sports has uh, changed so much over time. Um, going back to the day of ESPN, the Entertainment and Sports Network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can, um, I mean, um, uh, I wasn't around for this, but if you think back to the real old days, back in the day, and really baseball, which has 162 games a year and where you get real fans going to the to the ball game uh showing up for the day game on a wednesday um those are baseball fans bill uh, the median person at this weekend's game is probably not going to be a football fan Mm -hmm. it will be a mark zuckerberg or mark zuckerberg somebody like mark zuckerberg uh because it is the place to be there will be parties there will be after parties there will be before parties and um bill you and i both know we're going to see probably an enormous COVID spike in Los Angeles after all this. And again, the elites play by a different set of rules, uh, masking up, social distancing, all the stuff that California says they're doing, which other states like Florida is not doing, they're going to look the other way. And, um, you know, the, uh, the lower income people who are serving those elites, yeah, they're probably going to be the ones who get COVID and, um, and may not have the means um, to deal with it, such as those elites are. So yes, as Gatsby would say, the rich are different from you and me, and, and it's, this is going to be out in spades this weekend. One other thing I'd like to get your thoughts on here, Lee, uh, when we talk about the North-South divide, uh, both parts of the state have chips on their shoulders in this regard. Um, The South has complained bitterly for years about how the North dominates politics. Uh, That is Jerry Brown as governor, Gavin Newsom as governor, Nancy Pelosi, uh, even though Schwarzenegger um, was a Southern Californian and uh, my boss Pete Wilson was a Southern Californian, uh, Gray Davis all from Southern California, they still claim that there is a Northern California bias when it comes to how state politics are run. Uh, the North and the South have arguments over which is the really intellectual, uh, uh, imaginative uh, center of California. Uh, Southland will claim, hey, we do entertainment. We're, you know, we're changing the entertainment industry on a daily basis. We're imaginative. And Silicon Valley say, oh, technology. We're the tech people. We're imaginative. But what you do see here, Lee, is which part of the state has a lot of money to spend because, again, it's people coming from the north and heading south for tickets, and they have cash to spend. So it just shows you that Northern California is flush with money, which I guess ties in what we talked about earlier about California sitting on this $45 billion surplus. There's just so much money floating around in the state right now. No, there is. There is. And Bill, um, you know, from an economic point of view, there's a huge divide in terms of water. Uh, Northern California getting much more typical rain in a typical year than Southern California. And more recently, Southern California uh, has been really short on rain. So those are issues that come up about water transfers to the south and particularly right. for uh, Southern California agriculture. Uh, and, you know, the south, Southern California is supposed to be more laid back, surfers, uh, Northern California being more erudite, more intellectual, um, the uh, the debate rages. But right now, with IPOs, the stock market going up like nobody's business, um, Silicon Valley still putting it out. Um, the North is where is really where it's at. Plenty of plenty of well-heeled billionaires in the South, but 
the North is on the way. And, you know, congrats to the 49ers. They struggled for a lot of the season. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure anybody had them going this far. Um, but, you know, if, if this weekend's game is anything like the games we saw this past weekend, which were just a godsend for the NFL, I mean, my goodness, could you have imagined anything better? Just the quality of play, close games, um, you know, real nail biters, just remarkable athletes. Um, you know, just one last note, uh, uh, the NFL has been the master at monetizing what they do and right. effectively doubling their audience because with uh, fantasy football and tailgating and having people over for a barbecue to watch games on a Sunday morning and afternoon, they double their audience by bringing women in. The, the, med- the median NFL um, fan now is a woman. Gentlemen, any predictions for this weekend? Uh, yeah, California team will go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm with you, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Well, gentlemen, this has been very interesting and timely analysis. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, you've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, the Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you might hear it. And if you don't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Bill Whalen is on Twitter. His handle is at Bill Whalen C-A. And Leo Hanian is also on Twitter. His handle, his handle is at Lee underscore O'Hanian. Please visit the Hoover website at hoover.org and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, where you can access the latest scholarship and analysis from our fellows. Also, check out California On Your Mind, where Bill Whalen and Leo Hinian write every week. Again, this is Jonathan Mavroidis sitting in Bill Whalen's chair this week. He'll be back for another episode of, of Matters of Policy and Politics. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.